So this morning I'd uh, like to reflect on the third foundation of mindfulness, the contemplation of the mind. And I'm quite sure this is one of the foundations of mindfulness that you've been reflecting on already in a variety of different ways, um, both consciously and perhaps unconsciously too. Often, there's not just one way of contemplating the mind. There's a whole range of different ways of that undertaking that contemplation. One way that we contemplate the mind is in terms of contents, the different thoughts, images, memories that arise. We, we just notice them within the mind. One way that we contemplate the mind is in terms of process. How the mind of the moment is kind of woven together of many different factors. That there's contact and sense impression, there's feeling, we think about it, we proliferate about it, there's mind states, and we can see this process of the mind of the moment being born and also falling away. One way that we contemplate the mind is in the light of what are called the three characteristics, change, unsatisfactoriness, non-self. We see the rising and passing, the impossibility of freezing the mind into any one position, any, you can't just have one mind, you see you don't have the same mind throughout a day, throughout an hour. The arising and passing, the constant changing nature of the mind. Another way, in the second characteristic, the unsatisfactoriness of, of really trying to make a home within any kind of mind. Um, how it is essentially ephemeral, transparent, the non-self. We see how easily the mind is one of the places where the sense of I really comes to roost most easily. I am my thoughts, you know, I am like this. Another way of contemplating the mind is, almost contemplating the mind as if we were contemplating the sky. This vast open space in which clouds, rain, wind appears and disappears, night, day, stars, rainbows, and all arising and passing within that space, which can actually, doesn't have preferences, which can hold and receive whatever appears in a fearless, in an unshaken way. Now, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the contemplating of the mind is approached in a really rather specific way. Because it really refers initially to contemplating the states of mind. The states of mind. Now, contemplating these states of mind includes contemplating emotions, mood, 
the basic climate of the mind, moment to moment from which everything is born in the mind, the different thoughts, opinions, views, clinging, aversion. Now when we do contemplate the mind, we see also it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I mean, it's really interesting even to explore what do we understand about this word mind that we use so often you know, my mind is like this. How do we actually understand our own mind? This is the beginning of this contemplation of the mind, to really explore some of the views that we have about this mind. But we do see that the mind, as I mentioned, doesn't exist in a vacuum. In fact, it is always interwoven and relating to the other foundations of mindfulness. We see the state of our mind has much to do with feeling with Vedana, that when there's an unpleasant Vedana in the body, in thoughts, in environment, how easily a state of mind of aversion arises. When there's a pleasant Vedana, it also is one of the factors in creating the state of mind of the moment. I mean, a pleasant Vedana, you know, a tasty meal, we can see how easily it can give rise to different states of mind, actually. It can give rise to greed, and, you know, I want more of that. It can also give rise to a sense of delight, appreciation. So, you know, and I think this is very important, that the Vedana tones don't always end up in disaster. You know, that the pleasant Vedana can give rise to many of the lovely states of mind which are really important in this practice that we are cultivating, of joy, of delight, of calmness, of spaciousness, of appreciation. But we see that pleasant Vedana is also one of the building blocks of less pleasant states of mind. And that is also what is interesting, because you can see like there's a pleasant Vedana, for example, a nice meal, Initially, you know, that's really nice. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. Much better than a terrible meal. Um, but we can see even upon that pleasantness, we can build an unpleasant state of mind. If there's grasping. You know, so the initial pleasantness, oh, I really loved lunch. Where does that go? I wonder if we're going to get that again, you know, if that's going to appear. Maybe I need a second plate, even though I don't. You know, I can think about it. How did they cook that? You know, I, I think I'll write them a note and ask them. You know, you can see how even the pleasant Vedana can actually turn into the unpleasant if it gets surrounded by grasping. When we contemplate the states of mind, we actually see that we're affected by mental states from the first moment that we sit down on a cushion and endeavor to be attentive. For example, some of you may have had a little taste of the hindrance factors over these days, you know, of dullness or agitation or craving or aversion, doubt. You may be having a taste of those hindrance factors today. They're states of mind. They're states of mind. They ask for contemplation. They don't ask, how do I get over this? Um, we also see the way that states of mind weave into our bodies. 
you know, when there's a very restless state of mind, the body comes to be almost in the service of that restless state of mind. You know, we find ourselves perhaps prowling, notice boarding, turn that into a verb. You know, we find ourselves browsing through the library. You know, you know the sense doors get very activated by a restless state of mind. We see it in, in the body if the mind is very dull, you know, when you curl up into the fetal posture. Anger certainly has a huge impact upon the body as a state of mind. The burning, the fire that we experience in our body. We also see that states of mind are almost activators, initiators, impacting upon our attitudes of the moment, what we pay attention to, and really what we neglect to pay attention to, too. So important to understand this mind and to be mindful of our mind. You know, again, so many people can have this attitude that it's simply a kind of impediment in the practice, you know, something to subjugate and, and crush and overpower in some way. And that's not the practice of insight. But to understand the power and the potentiality of our minds, because in truth the mind lives in a state of potentiality. It can be shaped by that which is lovely. It can be shaped by that which is unwholesome. It can be shaped by grasping. It can be shaped by letting go. It can be shaped by anger. It can be shaped by loving kindness. The mind is existing in a state of potentiality. And it is the forerunner of all things. As the Buddha put it so simply, he said, the mind is the forerunner of all things. That all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with an unclear mind and suffering will follow, just as the wagon wheel follows the axe. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a clear and peaceful mind, and happiness follows, like a never-departing shadow. Now there is much in life that can torment us. Adversity, pain, illness, difficult people, difficult situations. In my experience, there's very little in the world that can seem to torment us so much as our own mind. With its capacities, its potentiality for obsessions, for stories, for reactions, for preoccupations. There is also much in life that can bring happiness. Wonderful sights, sounds, a well body, wonderful people. But there is also, in my experience, little in the world that can bring us so much happiness as a clear and peaceful mind. So what do we say, what can we say about mental states? the moods, the climate of our mind. First thing we can say is that we all have them. In every moment, no one is exempt. You have a particular state of mind right now. Spacious, contracted, interested, bored, 
dull, alert. Everybody in the room has a state of mind in this moment. The other thing that we can say about states of mind, I think, is to see that they can be incredibly productive. They're very fertile. They give rise to the thoughts, the speech, the actions of the moment. And our thoughts and speech, choices and actions are aligned with the state of our mind. If we have an aversive state of mind, in that moment we're very rarely going to be having thoughts of loving kindness. If we have a mind of kindness of the moment, it's very unlikely we're going to be having judgmental and aversive thoughts. They are also, it's really important to see, because it's a very important clue to the state of our mind, is the kind of flavor of the thoughts that we are experiencing. Another thing we can say about states of mind is that they are a process. They are in a constant state of change. No matter how hard you tried, you couldn't maintain a consistent aversive state of mind. No matter how hard you tried, you couldn't maintain a persistent restless state of mind. They are in a state of process, a constant state of change. Another important thing, I think, to say about states of mind is that through dwelling and repetition, they harden into character. In a way, they have a lot to do with forming self-view. For example, you know, if we tend to kind of have a sort of bleak state of mind, um, you know, it tends to lead to aversion. It flavors of how we see the world. Everything is doomed to failure. And it becomes the lens, basically, through how we perceive and interpret life. You know, so you see those views all the time, you know, you know, the world is in, you know, an endless state of chaos, as everything is so hard, everything is so difficult or gloomy, you know, or, you know, you can get the reverse state of view, you know, oh, well, the universe has its own nature and everything has a harmony we can't always see. It's a view. You know, but these views become, in a way, characters. If you look at any of the ways that you might define yourself, you know, I'm a depressive type, you know, or I'm a delude, you know, that's why I always think these, these kind of labels are so weird, you know, when people say, oh, I'm a greed type. Well, who's a greed type, please? And who isn't? You know, <laughs> you know, everything is it's so artificial to sort of have these characters, uh, these uh, categories, you know, or I'm a deluded type. And I'm an aversive type. It's like, well, who isn't? You know, it's it's like these states of mind come and go. But what happens if we keep experiencing a particular state of mind because of various conditions, and we keep dwelling on it and proliferating about it, then it will end up with a view that I am like this. Of course, and we. We don't confine that view-making to ourselves. You are like that, you know, or you are a greed type, or, you know, you are an angry type. It's also interesting to see that, of course, it, you know, it's very easy to frame things in the negative. 
you know, if there's a continuing inclination to rest in calmness, to rest in kindness, to rest in equanimity, to rest in compassion, this also becomes really a, a, a familiar state of mind. It kind of also forms into character. You know, and I think, it, you know, we have this saying in English that something is second nature, you know, like you've got familiar with something and, you know, you've, you've become good at it or whatever, and you say, well, it's kind of second nature. Second nature to be helpful, you know, or it's second nature to, to be unhelpful. But in this tradition, actually, what we, we do is we start with second nature because we really cultivate wholesome and skillful states of mind, actually. But what starts as second nature actually becomes first nature. So it's not as if something that then is then born of effort, uh, born of intention. It actually becomes the, the state, the natural state of mind. Another thing that I think is really important in the contemplation of the mind, and the Buddha was really very specific about this, is the quality of discernment to bring discernment into our state of mind, to know that some mental states lead to suffering, contractedness. And so we can discern that they are unwholesome or unskillful. This is very different than saying they're bad or wrong. They're simply unwholesome or unskillful because they only have one outcome, which is suffering. There are other states of mind which actually really clearly lead to the end of suffering. They lead to happiness, to well-being, to connectedness. And so they're called not good or right, but they're called wholesome and skillful. And they are cultivated. And it's very clear in this tradition, which is a training tradition really, that we are learning to actually release the unwholesome and the unskillful. But it's not that I let go of the unwholesome and the unskillful. More often it is true that the unwholesome and unskillful I let go of in the light of cultivating the wholesome and the skillful. You know, it's like if we cultivate calm, we don't have a moment, do we, where we say, oh, I've let go of agitation. Agitation lets go in the light of calmness. If we cultivate loving-kindness, we don't have a moment where we say, oh yes, I've just really let go of aversion, we just see that aversion softens in the light of loving-kindness. If we, we cultivate spe spaciousness and ease, you know, it's not that again, that then I have decided to let go of contractedness, it's like that spaciousness and ease is actually the mechanism of letting go of the unskillful, or the unhelpful. It is also important to understand that mental states are born of conditions, of contact, of feeling, of memory, of association, of thought. They're just one part of a chain of what happens in our consciousness. Also, I think, incredibly important to understand is that we are simply not helpless in the face of the various states of mind that make their appearance through a single day. Again, coming back to the Pali word for meditation, which is bhavana, to bring into being, to nurture, to cultivate. It is really what the practice is so all about. 
we are bringing into being, cultivating all that is wholesome, that is liberating, that is healing. And this is what releases the habitual mental states that cause suffering. I think one of, for me, it's one of the statements that the Buddha made that I just find so incredibly important is when he said, what we frequently think and ponder about becomes the inclination of our mind. That what we frequently think and ponder about becomes the inclination of our mind. And in this practice, we're learning to incline our minds towards calm, peace, sensitivity, and mindfulness. Now, I'd just like to read you from the Satipatthana Sutta what the Buddha had to say about contemplating states of mind. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands a mind affected by lust as a mind affected by lust, and a mind unaffected by lust as a mind unaffected by lust. He understands the mind affected by hate as a mind affected by hate, and the mind unaffected by hate as a mind unaffected by hate. Same with delusion, he understands the mind affected by the delusion as a mind affected by delusion, and the mind unaffected by delusion as unaffected. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind, and distracted mind and distracted mind. She understands exalted mind as exalted mind, and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. Surpassed mind as surpassed, and unsurpassed as unsurpassed. Concentrated as concentrated, unconcentrated and unconcentrated. Liberated as liberated, and unliberated as unliberated. Now I think you sort of get the message here. (laughs) It's this work of knowing. It's the work just of knowing. It's not the work of fixing or improving or manipulating. It's simply the knowing, to know the mind as mind. Now this is incredibly important because upon our knowing we so often layer so much other stuff. You know, like, this is a good mind, a bad mind. I don't want this mind. I'd rather have that mind. You know, I'm going to get out of this one. You know, I'm going to fix out. We layer so much extra stuff upon knowing, sometimes because we just don't have enough confidence simply in the power of just knowing. Just being mindful. But the work of mindfulness is to simply be receptively aware of the state of mind that underlies a particular train of thought or reactions. Being aware of the state of mind that is underlying that train of thought or reactions is actually acting as a way of stepping off the train. I mean, you can see, you know, the productivity of a restless mind or the productivity of aversive mind. You know, it's giving rise to those thoughts and reactions. Come back when you notice a train of thoughts or reactions. Just come back and ask yourself, what is the state of my mind? 
It's seeing that mental states are like the fuel that keeps certain thought loops and reactions going. It's, it's like the gas in the car. It's like the fuel. And often, you know, we just layer another mental state upon it. You know, you can see maybe you have a, an irritated state of mind. Okay, it's an irritated, irritated state of mind. It has lots of judgmental and irritated thoughts. But then we get irritated with the irritated state of mind. You know, I, I shouldn't have this irritated state of mind. I should have a better unirritated state of mind. It's kind of like this layering is what we're trying to let go of. When, we're no, when there's no mindfulness, these loops of thinking that are generated by states of mind eventually starts to pick up a self-view. I've always been like this. You know, I've always been depressed. I've always been a failure. I've always been a striver. You know, I always will be. And then that self-view creates the worldview. You know, the world is just, it's just an awful place. So as you work, you know, it's the same with anxiety. You can feel if there's an anxious state of mind. You know, it will pick up a loop system, you know, of all the things that we could worry about. And then that would pick up a self-view, you know, of I'm such a frightened person. And then that would pick up a worldview as the world is being so threatening. So it's really being aware that as we understand the state of our mind, we are also understanding our worldview and self-view. This is an incredibly important contemplation, but it's not complicated. You know, it's not that like you have to sort of you know backtrack and what was that and what was that. It's learning just to know the mind as the mind. To know the mind as the mind. To do that is to take the self-view out, and it's a way actually of rather than feeding the mental states, it's a way of fasting withdrawing the fuel. Now when the Buddha talks about lust and greed and anger, and then he talks about the absence. Now the absence, again, you know, the, the language we, is used in this tradition is often kind of not terribly sort of inspiring, but the absence means, you know, the absence of greed is calm. You know, the absence of ag agitation is contentment. The absence of anger is loving kindness. The absence of delusion is clarity. The absence of distractedness is collectedness. So we're learning, actually, to balance the mind through the cultivation of everything that we do in the practice, the whole intentionality that we bring into the practice to calm, to settle, to pay attention, to collect. He's also speaking about cultivating the mind, which is truly our greatest friend. Not through rejecting the difficult or unskillful states, but through acceptance, through knowing, and through letting go. To cultivate a mind that is not bound by anything, that is focused, that is free of clinging and free of view. This is something that actually we quite naturally and, and quite more and more consciously do bring into our practice, to be able to pause through the day, to ask ourselves moment to moment, as you begin a sitting, what is the state of my mind? As you end a sitting, to be able to ask yourself,
what is the state of my mind. When you come for an interview, when you go to lunch, what is the state of my mind? Simply to know that, sometimes the clues are in the thoughts, the prevailing thought trains that are there. Sometimes the clue to the state of our mind is in our bodies. It's really just really cultivating that capacity to listen and to know the state of our mind. Also knowing that that state of our mind is shaping our world. Now sometimes the knowing is simply enough. But sometimes also when we see a state of mind that can feel a little bit more intractable, it can feel a little bit more stuck, then we can ask ourselves, what does this need? What does this state of mind actually ask for? If it's very dull, obviously what is missing is, is energy, is perhaps interest. If it's very agitated, the mind may need more intention to calm, to settle, to, in a way, to guard the sense doors. If there's a kind of persistent aversion or resistance, we might see that this needs some kindness, some compassion, some generosity. We don't want to get too busy. The bottom line in the knowing of the mind is really, does this lead to well-being and peace, or does it lead to its opposite? I mean, it really is quite radical simply to know the mind as mind, because we see how much more easily we're inclined to say, you know, my mind, my thoughts, I am my thoughts. I am my emotions. I am my moods. To know the mind as a mind is simply in the service of creating a greater sense of spaciousness, of calm, of peace. When you read the Saripatana Sutta, every time I go back to it, I sort of notice something uh, different or new in it. And, and I think this is incredibly obvious to any of you who have ever read the Saripatana Sutta. It's so interesting to me the way that the Buddha puts out the contemplation. Like he puts out the contemplation of the body. He puts out the contemplation of feeling. He puts out the contemplation of the mind. And then there's this headline, and it says, Insight. <laughs> and then it goes on to list, you know, this is meant actually to have these insights. You know, it's not just about being mindful of. But it is to understand. And it, it's, it's kind of like if you had a map, you know, and there's that arrow pointing that says, you are here. You know, it's kind of the same in this sutta where it says insight, you know, insight, pay attention. This is what's meant to be understood. And the insight, the insight in this part, is really simple. So in this way she abides, contemplating mind as mind internally, or contemplating mind as mind externally, or internally and externally, or abides contemplating mind in its arising factors, what leads that mind to arise in its vanishing factors. Or, or else the mindfulness that there is mind, there is mind, is simply established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. This is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind.
Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.